Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that's walking through Dante's second canticle, Purgatorio, a podcast that has been on hiatus in real time. You may or may not know that, depending on when you get to this episode, and a podcast that has come through the major gate of Purgatory itself, the giant mountain that rises on the other side of the earth from Italy. If none of that makes sense... (laughs) Go back and look at all the episodes about Inferno that lie behind us. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to read through Cantos 10 through 12 of Purgatorio. This is a rough English translation. I refine it in the episodes ahead. But as we've been doing in the past in Purgatorio, I feel as if it is important for us to lay out the whole groundwork. Before we get to that, let's have a plot review. It's sunrise. We're standing on the slope of a mountain. Virgil and Dante are standing there, I should say. They're seeing the sun. Well, they're seeing the stars. And then the sun just starting to glow. And suddenly an old man appears. Cato. Yes, the old Roman Cato appears. He appears to be some sort of gatekeeper of this mountain. Virgil at first flatters him by saying, hey, if you'll tell us where to go, I'll say good things about you to Marcia. Your wife, Cato, waves poor Virgil off and says, uh... Skip it. Who cares? And then he sends Dante down to the shore of the mountain to find some reeds. And Virgil then cleans up Dante with some reeds at the shore of the mountain. One of the few actual counter motions or descents in all of comedy. As they're down there at the shore... An angel's ship appears. Well, a ship appears, but now there's an angel in it. It's coming fast. We find out it came from basically the mouth of the Tiber River and is carrying those souls who are destined for purgatory. They get out of the boat and Casela is one of them. Dante tries to embrace his friend Casela. He fails. His arms go through him. Then Casela, as compensation, I guess, sings a song, maybe one of Dante's own poems, which causes that old Cato to suddenly reappear and rebuke them all and say, hey, what are you doing hanging out here singing songs? Get busy. You got a mountain to climb. Dante and Virgil run off. Virgil very lacklusterly. Is that a word? Lacklusterly runs off? I don't know. It's kind of sad the way Virgil runs off the old man himself. But as they run, Dante sees his shadow. And it's the first time that Dante really realizes his corporeality and Virgil's lack of corporeality. They then meet a flock of very timid souls, some which are like sheep and hanging back and not getting out of the pasture. But one of them comes forward. Of course, it's Manfred. And we find out that these are excommunicated souls. We find that these are forced to be here for a set amount of time based on how long they were excommunicated. From here, there's a very hard path up to a view. And here at this beautiful view, We find Balakwa resting in the shade under a boulder to the side, the lazy old Balakwa who just doesn't want to go on. But he's soon overcome by some souls who are running up to us very fast. They come at a great pace, and these are those who died without any extreme unction or died without a final moment of forgiveness. Jacopo del Casaro, Buonconte da Montefeltro, and the very enigmatic La Pia among them. There are all kinds of discussions after this about the efficacy of prayers for the dead, because all of them want Dante to go back to the land of the living and 
pray for them or beg their relatives to pray for them so that they pass on into the main part of purgatory. This begins a giant dialogue about God's will and human's desire and how the two interact with each other. And that dialogue <laughs> leads us to Sordello, the troubadour poet, who is sitting kind of outside of a veil of princes and kings. There is a huge digression on the political cesspool that has become Italy that then goes out to a conversation between Sordello and Virgil. Of course, the two poets have to talk to each other. And then we see this Valley of the Princes, and there are lots of pairs, former enemies, paired up and crying together in this beautiful flower-filled veil. Angels come down, and as they descend, we also see two figures, Nino Viscante and Corrado Malaspina, who confront our pilgrim, mostly our pilgrim, and I guess a little bit, Virgil. They all then wait for the appearance of some serpent that slithers through apparently nightly. The angels ward it off with their broken swords. And then Dante, from all this activity, falls asleep. He's tired and falls asleep on the verdant grass. He has the dream of an eagle carrying him off. It includes references to Ganymede. He wakes up all in a fright. We find out that Lucy has appeared in purgatory and carried the pilgrim up to the very gate of purgatory itself with Virgil in tow. There at the gate, we find an angel with two keys and a whole sword, and we find three steps up to that angel while he's sitting just above the steps, but three steps, a white one, a purple one, and a red one. The angel takes that sword and carves seven P's, the letter P, in the pilgrim's forehead. The angel says that he is told to err on the side of mercy. The gate of purgatory opens. We hear the hymn Te Deum Laudamus, and the pilgrim and Virgil step through into purgatory proper to the sounds of an organ and a choir. That's where we've been. Now, where are we going? Let's read Cantos 10 through 12 of Purgatorio. Just sit back. Listen to them for the sweep of the plot and know that this is a rough translation that will be fixed in subsequent episodes. Once we were inside the threshold of the door, the one that those souls with their malevolent love could not use because they tried to make the straight way up here crooked, a noise told me that it had shut tight. If I'd turned my eyes back to have a look... How could I have made any excuse for my fault? We then climbed through the rock's little crack. It seemed to turn one way, then another, almost like a wave as it pulls back, then comes forward. We've got to employ a lot of art here, my leader began, if we want to stay on the right-hand side and get close to the spot where the rock opens up. Doing so slowed our pace considerably. Meanwhile, the moon had waned enough that it had lain down in its bed and gone to rest. We finally got out of that needle's eye. Although we were free and out in the open, that is, on the side of the mountain where it's pulled back to make a little space, I was quite tired. Plus, we were both uncertain of the way ahead. We rested at a flat spot that felt more isolated than a path through the desert. Measured from the edges drop, bordering out over the emptiness to the base of the steeply ascending wall, the ledge was no bigger than three times a person's body. And as far as my eye could take its flight, now toward the left, also 
toward the right, the terrace seemed to stretch out in front of me. Our feet had hardly stepped onto it when I saw that the embankment next to us was steep and quite impossible to climb. It was made out of white marble and so adorned with such carvings that not only Polycletus, but even nature herself would have been subjected to scorn in the comparison. The angel who descended to earth to offer the peace that had been anticipated with tears for many, many years, the one who had thus opened heaven after the long prohibition, appeared before us in the carving with such veracity and with such a sweet attitude that it didn't seem like a silent image at all. You could have sworn he was saying Ave. She, too was pictured there, she who turned the key to open the way to the highest love. And in her features were clearly engraved the words Eche Anchila Dei, so much so that you'd have thought it had been stamped in wax. Don't set your mind on only one part of all this, my kind master said, who had set me on the side of him where people have their hearts. On beyond Mary, and on the same side where he had moved me to look, I turned my face and saw another story drawn into the rock. I walked on beyond Virgil and got close up so that my eyes might inspect it more fully. There carved in the marble were the cart and oxen which drew the sacred Ark of the Covenant. It stops anyone from doing a task not assigned to them. In the foreground, there appeared to be a lot of people, in fact, a big crowd divided into seven choirs. They were so lifelike they made one think, no, and then, yes, they are singing in like manner. The smoke of the incense was so lifelike that it put my eyes and nose in a similar discord, you know, somewhere between no and yes. There, before the vessel, the humble psalmist leaped up, his robes flying around him. He looked both more and less than a king at this moment. Across from him, and framed in the window of the splendid palace, Michael gazed out at him. She was like a woman who was sad and upset. I moved on a few steps from where I stood to take a look at another bit of history. I saw it gleaming white beyond Michael. Here was told the tale of the high glory of the Roman prince whose great valor pushed Gregory to his tremendous victory. I'm talking about the emperor Trajan and the poor widow who stood at his bridal. She was the embodiment of weeping and sorrow. The ground beneath them seemed to have been trodden down by the knights. In the air, even the golden eagles seemed to move about on the wind. In the midst of all that, that miserable woman seemed to say, My lord, on my behalf, make a vendetta for my son who was murdered. He's the reason I'm in grief. And he replied to her, hang tight for now until I get back here. And she, like a person whose grief is overwhelming, said, my lord, what if you don't come back? And he, the one who will be in my place, will do it. And she, what's the good of someone else's goodness if you've already forgotten it yourself? Then he said, now comfort yourself, for it appears I have to fulfill my obligation to you before I can move on from here. Justice wills it so, and compassion holds me in check." The one in whose sight nothing new can be seen had done the work so that this speech seemed visible. It was new to us because it couldn't be found anywhere else. As he took so much pleasure looking at these images of ultimate humility and even lovelier to look at because of the care their maker took, the poet whispered to me, Here they come, although with steps that are so very hushed and slow. They'll cue us into the next ascent from here. 
My eyes had been quite content to stare at the marble art, but they quickly turned in this new direction, so happy at the promise of something wholly new. I don't want you, reader, to fall off of your good intentions on hearing how God decides the debt has to be paid. Don't linger over the nature of the suffering. Think about what comes next. Think that at the worst, it can't go beyond the last judgment. I began, Master, the ones I see coming toward us don't seem like people at all. Whatever they are, I can't make it out. And he replied to me, the grave condition of their suffering pushes them down to the earth so that at first sight, even my eyes were out of whack. But take a closer look. Disentangle the figures underneath the stones overhead. At that point, you'll be able to see how each one pounds his chest. Oh, proud Christians. Oh, miserable wretches. Sick with those visions that fill up your brains. You've put your trust in steps that lead you backwards. Don't you realize that we're born as worms, but that we can morph into butterflies and soar up to justice without any problems? What makes your spirits rear up as if they're so high and mighty? You are truly defective things like a squishy worm shaped in the mud. To hold up a roof or a ceiling, like in a carved column, we sometimes see a figure crouching down with its knees pressed against its chest. That untrue depiction may cause real distress in the one who sees it. Such were the shapes I saw when I could at last see them clearly. They were more or less crushed by whatever the size of the burdens on their backs. Even the guy that showed the most patience seemed to say through his tears, I just can't anymore. Our Father, who abides in heaven, not contained there except by the greater love you have for your first creations on high, praise be your name and your honor for every created thing, as is your due when we give thanks for your sweet breath. Let the peace of your realm come to us, for we can't get there on our own, since it won't naturally come to us, even with all of our ingenuity. Just as your angels, with their own free will, make sacrifices to you and sing Hosanna, so let people do the same thing with their own free will. Give us today our daily manna, without which the one working to move ahead only goes backward into the bitter wilderness. And as we forgive the ones who've done each one of us wrong, so forgive us in your benevolence. And don't pay attention to what we really deserve. Don't put our powers to the test, which give way before the ancient adversary, but keep us free from the one who tempts those powers." This last prayer, our precious Lord, is not made for ourselves because we don't need to, but for the ones who are still left behind. Praying in this way for a safe haven for them and for us, these shades made their way underneath their heavy loads, similar to the sort that weighs us down in dreams. With disparate weights on them, these souls trudged around the first of the cornices, cleansing off the darkness of the world. If up there good can always be said for the benefit of us down here, what then can be said and done for the benefit of them by those down here who find that their will has taken root in the good? Indeed, we should help them wash off the stain that they carry on their backs so that pure in light they can make their exit for the star-hung wheels. Hey, 
so that justice and compassion may soon ungrieve you and give you wings to be able to mount on high, lifting you up as you desire, show us the shortest way to the stairs, and if there's more than one passage, help us know which way's not quite so steep. For this one comes here with me. He's still clothed in the flesh of Adam. He wants to go on up, although he's making slow progress of it right now. The next words, which came as a response to the ones spoken by the man I follow, were not clearly manifest from any individual among them. Nevertheless, we heard, keeping to the right of the embankment, come with us along the ledge to find the passage that it's possible for a living man to climb. If I were not impeded by the stone that is in the service of bending my proud neck so that I can't lift my face up from the ground down below, I would take a gander at this guy who's still alive but nameless. I could see if I recognize him and force him to feel some compassion for this incredible weight on me. I was an Italian, born of a titled Tuscan. Guiglielmo Aldo Brandesco was my father. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name. The ancient bloodline and the noble deeds of my ancestors made me quite arrogant, so much so that I didn't think about our common mother and held all people in such great contempt that it led to my death. Exactly how it happened, everybody in Siena and every kid in Campagnatico knows. I am Umberto. Pride has made me come undone. And the same with all my kinfolk. We've been shoved into utter calamity. For this, I have to shoulder this heavy weight for them until God is satisfied, as I didn't do when I was alive, but rather have to do now among the dead. As I listened, I bowed my face down. One of them, not the one who spoke, contorted himself beneath the weight that held him down. He saw me. He recognized me. He called out, even though he had a tough time keeping his eyes on me as I all bent over went along with them. Oh, I said to him, you are Odorisi, aren't you? The honor of Gubbio and the honor of that art which in Paris they call illumination. Brother, he said, the pages now glow even more from the brush strokes of the Bolognese Franco. These days, the honor is all his. It's only mine in part. For sure, I would hardly have been so accommodating while I was still alive, for the great desire to excel gripped my heart tightly. Because of just this sort of pride, we pay our debts here. I wouldn't even be here yet, except that while it was still possible and I still had the ability to sin, I turned myself toward God. Oh, the sheer emptiness of human capabilities. For such a short time, the green of victory lasts until an age of darkness comes at its heels. In painting, we all believe that Cimabue held the field, and now it's all Giotto that gets the applause, so much so that the other's fame has dimmed. In like manner, one Guido has taken the fame of our language from another, and maybe someone has been born who will drive first the one and then the other from that nest. The world's renown is no more than a blustery wind which blows from one spot then from another, changing its name with every direction. Will greater honor be yours if you put off your flesh when you're old than if you died while you still had papo and dindi on your lips even after a thousand years have gone by? That's a shorter span of time than the blink of an eye when compared to eternity, just as the rotation of a slower sphere is nothing with one moving more quickly. 
As to the one who's going along so slowly in front of me, all of Tuscany knew him, and now there's barely a whisper about him in Siena. He was a ruler there when they knocked down the Florentine insolence, a city as prideful at the time as she now is a whore. Your fame is but the color of the grass which comes and goes. It loses its color because of the very one that makes it spring up from the earth. And I replied to him, What you say truly pierces my heart with benevolent humility and lances a great swelling in there. But who is the guy you talked about right now? That guy, he replied, is Provenzan Salvani. He's here because he was so presumptuous that he thought he'd get all of Siena into his hands. And just that way he walks on without rest, just as he has since he died. He pays back his debt in a similar coin, that is, because he was too stiff-necked back in the day. And I said, if a spirit that holds off, praying for his repentance until the very edge of life has to stay down below on Mount Purgatory and can't come up here for as many hours as he had on earth, unless good prayers help him ascend, how's this guy allowed up here now? When he was alive, at the height of his fame, Odorisi said, he willingly sat in Siena's campo and put aside all of his shame. There, to pay the price for his friend who was held in Charles's prison, he was reduced to quaking along every vein of his body. I can't say any more. Please understand that what I said is surely obscure, but it won't be long before your townsmen will act in a way that you'll be able to gloss my words. This deed brought him on beyond those confines down below that you mentioned." Alongside each other, like bulls under a yoke, that weighted soul and I went along the path, at least as long as my sweet teacher let it be so. But then Virgil said, let him alone. Hurry up. For right here, it's only right to speed your ship along as much as you can with wings and with oars. I stood spine upright as a person should be, even though my thoughts remained bent over and diminished. Even so, I set out willingly following in my master's steps. Our easy steps already made it clear how light we now felt. Virgil said to me, look down, it'll be good for you. It'll also let your way be more tranquil if you look down at the roadbed beneath our feet. As gravestones to make the memory accessible are set to witness what the dead once were, the carved figures in the monuments calling the dead to mind, making a sorrowful again full of Tears just at the moment when our memories prick and spur us, almost as if the heart needs another prompt. Just so. I saw these figures carved here, better in semblance even than in artifice, along that pathway cut out of the side of the mountain. I saw the one who was created more noble than any other creature. He fell like lightning from the sky and over to one side. I saw Briarius on the other side, fixed in place by a celestial lightning bolt, now frozen on the earth in the throes of his death. I saw Thembraeus, Pallas, and Mars still armored up along with their father, all struck dumb by the scattered limbs of giants. I saw Nimrod seemingly lost at the foot of his great work, and the people who were with him in pride staring out. Oh, Niobe, with your sad eyes, I saw you carved into the roadbed among your seven dead sons and seven dead daughters. Oh, Saul, Cast onto your own sword, I saw you dead there as at Gilboa, which never after had any rain or any dew. Oh, crazy Arachne, I saw you as a giant spider, pathetic, wound up in your own strands, that very work that did you so much woe. Oh, Rehoboam, 
Now you don't seem so terrible, rather more cowering. A chariot carries the thing off without anyone's giving it a chase. Now Alcmaon was shown on that hard pavement how he made the poor almond necklace that wasn't worth the price his mother paid for it. Now Sennacherib was overtaken by his sons inside of the temple, dead. They left him there. Now Tamiris made ruin and cruel slaughter when he said to Cyrus, You were thirsty for blood. Drink your fill. Now the Assyrians were put to rout and fled after Holofernes killed so many and left the slaughter scattered about. I saw Troy in ashes and ruins. O oh, Ilion, how debased and vile you became. Now it was visible right in the carvings. What master of the brush and stylus could have created such shades and outlines as these that surely would astonish even a true genius? The dead were dead. The living seemed living. The one who walked through the real events saw them no better than I did. My head bent down as I walked on top of them. Go on and be arrogant with your heads held up, you sons of Eve. Don't bend your faces down to pay attention at your evil path right at your feet. We had done more of the mountain circle, and the way of the sun had sped along its track far more than I held back in thoughts had reckoned, when this one, who always looks in front of himself as he went along, began to say, raise your head. This is not the moment for walking along so self-absorbed. See the angel over there who appears to be getting ready to come toward us. See the sixth handmaid who returns from her ancient service. Show reverence in your face and your carriage so that his desire may be to send us on up. Think that this day will never dawn again. I was well used to his admonishments not to waste time. So when it came to all this, his words weren't difficult to parse. The beautiful creature came toward us. He was clothed in white and in his face... There seemed to be the glimmerings of the morning star. He opened his arms, spread his wings, and said, Come, the steps are close by. From there, it's easy to climb on up. There aren't many who can answer this call, O human race, born to soar so high. Why does a little breeze cause you to tumble over? He brought us to the spot where the rock was split. Then he brushed his wings across my forehead and promised me that the way up ahead was safe. Just as the right-hand side to climb up the mountain where the church is situated above the Rubicante that controls that justly governed place, the very steep ascent is caught into the slope with stairs that are made at a time when all sorts of measurements and figurations can be trusted. Just so the bank here that fell steeply away from the higher circle was actually made more gentle, except that now and again a towering rock leaned pretty close by. While our bodies were headed in that direction, a voice was singing, Beati popere spiritu, in tones that couldn't be said in speech alone. Oh, how different these entrances are from the ones in hell. For here, once entrances met with singing, while down there, it's met with horrific cries. Now we were climbing up the sacred stairs, and I seemed to be much lighter than I'd been previously, even back when I'd walked along on level ground. So I said, Master, tell me, what weight has been lifted off of me, such that going on is hardly any effort at all? And he replied, when the peas that are remaining on your brow already faint shall be erased, your feet will be so controlled by a properly directed will that they will feel it's no sweat to ascend. In fact, they'll find delight in being urged on their way. Then I did as those who walk along with something they don't recognize on their head. They only know about it because the actions of others make them curious about what's going on. To put it another way, I reached up my hand for answers. By touching and feeling around, it accomplished what sight couldn't do at that moment. 
Spreading out the fingers of my right hand, I found that of the seven letters that he of the keys had traced on my forehead, only six were left. On seeing this, my leader smiled. Big chunk of Purgatorio. Those three cantos are so wild in so many ways, but I think you can already see some of the problems ahead of us. One, the narrative is breaking into pieces. It's breaking into denunciations and into uh, various exhortations toward humans back on Earth. It's stopping the narrative momentum in ways that we were not often stopped in Inferno or even in Purgatorio up to the point where we got that long digression about the cesspool of Italy. Another thing, You can see what Purgatorio is truly about. It's about art, and it's about the reasons humans make art, and it's about how art should be made. It is, at its core, Dante's theory of art. You can also see the beginning of what will happen in Purgatorio itself. That is, the purging of the seven deadly sins. And here, on this cornice, we have come upon the sin of pride, and it is an incredibly complicated and twisty explanation of pride and art and the proper places of art and how art is made and how art should be made and furthermore the raw materials of art itself and how you make art out of those raw materials. Oh, so much to be said. (laughs) Plus that great line, it used to be all Chimabue and now it's all Giotto. No artist doesn't know what that line feels like. It used to be all Brahms and now it's all Debussy. It used to be all Bach, and now it's Mozart, the passing away of the ephemeral moment. Oh, we've got so much to talk about in the cantos ahead. To get there, can I ask you if you please wouldn't mind rating and subscribing to this podcast? Become a part of the walk through a regular subscription. And remember, this podcast is unsupported. One of the greatest ways you can support it is by simply writing a review, even just great podcast or enjoying the walk in your native language on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. That's what will help me keep the podcast alive. I know that's not your concern. It's my concern. But at the same time, it is a way you can help support the podcast. Next time, we will turn to the first 27 lines of Canto Tien and do a deep dive, as we always do, into the lines that this master craftsman Dante has made, lines that have given him the very thing he decries, fame itself. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time.